Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 27 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the fourth speaker in our spring series, Perspectives on America, Election 2008. Author and social critic Oz Guinness was born in China where his parents were medical missionaries. He was educated in England, earning an undergraduate degree at the University of London and a Doctor of Philosophy in the Social Sciences at the University of Oxford. For the past 20 years, he has lived in Washington, D.C. He has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. He served as executive director of the Williamsburg Charter Foundation and co-authored the public school curriculum, Living With Our Deepest Differences. He has written or edited more than 20 books on faith, society, public policy, including The American Hour and Unspeakable, Facing Up to Evil in an Age of Genocide and Terror. His newest book, The Case for Civility, why America's Future Depends on It, is a proposal for reducing the polarization in American politics and culture and restoring a civil public square that encourages respectful dialogue and robust debate in pursuit of the common good. In the tradition of de Tocqueville, Dr. Guinness is both an admirer and a detached observer of American culture and, as such, he offers keen insight into the civic virtues needed for America to live up to its national ideals. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Oz Guinness. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a tremendous pleasure for me to be here. Having long heard of your Town Hall Forum, I have looked forward to this immensely. A few weeks ago, I was coming out of a large meeting in Washington, and a congressman came up to me and shook me by the hand, especially fervently, and he said, what am I to do? I've come to the conviction that America may be in decline, and many of our leaders are in denial, and they're not addressing the big national issues. What are we to do? Now, whether or not you agree with this assessment, what I want to raise today is unquestionably one of the big issues that has not been raised at the highest level. It would be a safe but sad bet that someone somewhere in the world right now is being killed in the name of religion. As we look back on the end of the 20th century, it was clear that a hundred million were killed in war, and another hundred million under political repression, and sadly, a further hundred million through sectarian and ethnic violence. And anyone who remembers the last years of the 20th century, the most murderous century in all human history, there was a witch's brew of humanitarian nightmare of ancient hatreds bubbling out. Since then, of course, we've been used to seeing the terrible sectarian violence in Iraq. 
but we could go wider. And in Kashmir, it would be Muslim against Hindu. Drop down to Sri Lanka and it would be Hindu against Buddhist. Not so long ago in Northern Ireland, it would be Protestant against Catholic. And so one could go on around much of the world. Now immediately our atheist friends would jump in and say, there you are, how religion poisons everything. But if they're more candid, they admit that while the story of religious division and violence is often awful, the story of repression under secularist regimes in the name of a secularist ideology led by secularist intellectuals has killed far more people in the last hundred years than almost all the Western repressions and persecutions combined. In other words, you look back on the last years of the last century, and certain very simple conclusions come to the fore. First, the challenge of living with our deep differences is one of our world's great issues. It may sound much more abstract, say, than HIV-AIDS or nuclear proliferation, but probably more people will die because of getting this wrong than many of the other great issues in our world. It's often said today in the global era, everyone is now everywhere. A little exaggerated, but you see the point. Never have we had such a diversity of ideologies and religions rubbing shoulder to shoulder with other ideologies and religions, and often in the same society or the same school district, sometimes in the same school. How do we live with our deep differences? The second thing that became clear is we're seeing the emergence of a global public square. Now, as Westerners, we're used to the notion of the public square. For the Greeks and for the Romans, it was a literal place. The place, the Agora, where they came together, the Forum for the Romans, to discuss, deliberate, and decide the issues of common concern. For us, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon democracies, it's a metaphor. Certainly it includes the Congress, or the House of Parliament, or the French Assembly. But it would also include the op-ed pages of the paper. And today, of course, in the global public square, in the age of the internet galaxy, it would include things like the blogosphere. But the important point today is that even when we're not speaking to the world, we can be heard by the world. And you just think of the reactions to the Danish cartoons or to the Pope's speech at Regensburg, and you can see how the internet age multiplies our voices enormously and gives the whole world the right to reply. How do we live with our deep differences in the emerging global public square? No one has addressed that. But the third conclusion comes closer to home. And that is that the very moment many in the world are seeing the significance of the great American experiment, the United States is not herself doing as well as she used to on this issue of living with our deep differences. Ironically, say, Europeans, the English or the Dutch or the French, when your founding fathers said this was the new order of the ages, the Novus Ordo Seclorum, they weren't interested. They weren't wrestling with the problems with which America wrestled from the beginning. 
In terms of diversity, they were largely homogeneous. But suddenly in the last generation, they've been catapulted into this world of change and exploding diversity without myths like the melting pot or great principles like the First Amendment to guide them. And you can see many of the Western European nations floundering in their attempts to negotiate differences under the conditions of today's world. And suddenly, they look to this country, which for 200 years has wrestled with these issues, many of them highly successfully. And yet in the last generation, America is embroiled in a culture war with extremism thrown up. So at the moment, the United States is the most extraordinary model for the world. In many ways, America is not living up to the greatness of its own ideals. Let me, in the short time we have, just set out some of the contours of this discussion. And first, think how the American experiment is one of the three great Western settlements of diversity, religion and public life, living with our deep differences, and so on. As you look at the West, many countries have had a formative year which has thrown a long shadow down the centuries. At one extreme, you have the French, and clearly their formative year was 1989 and the French Revolution. And you can capture their settlement if you unpack the famous words of Diderot, the encyclopedist, that was picked up by the French radicals. And this is what they said. We want to strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. Now, if you think that through, you understand what they're saying. There was a church and a state both were in close alliance, both were corrupt, and both were oppressive, the church and the state. And the revolution threw off both. And even today, say in the Sorbonne and down the centuries since the revolution, you have the French mentality that if you're in favor of faith, you must be reactionary. And if you're in favor of freedom, you must be secularist. And you can see that in the French resistance to any mention of the Christian faith or church in the preamble to the European Constitution and so on. The middle position is so often England. The key year there, 1688, and the glorious revolution. In this case, it kept a state church, the Church of England. But even you Presbyterians would admit the Church of England then was at least half reformed, and certainly it was not oppressive. There was no St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. So there was nothing vicious and oppressive against which to react. So there was no militant anti-clericalism or throwing off the state church alliance. But it was a state church, so religion in some ways was subtly coerced. And so there's been a mild reaction over the centuries, and today it's said the Church of England, all that's left of it, is like a national utility, like an electricity company. It's there, as the cynics say, for the hatching, matching, and dispatching of citizens. In other words, you baptize them, you marry them, and you bury them. Ah, oh, you put it less cynically, as one scholar puts it, the Church of England is the beautiful west window, the rose window of English national life. Not much spiritual integrity or social influence, but it's still there to crown the king and the queen and so on. The other extreme, of course, is the United States. 
And the key year here is 1791 and the Bill of Rights. And the first 16 words of the First Amendment are the most distinctive and decisive words of the entire Constitution. Not the separation of powers, that's not unique. It was the First Amendment touching religious liberty. And as you know well, faith in this country flourishes not despite disestablishment, but because of it. Because it is truly made voluntary. And the whole discussion in this country shifts from coercion, as with the European state churches, to persuasion. And at its heart, a faith that is voluntary based on the dictates of conscience. Now that has been incredibly influential for this country. And let me just mention three areas where it has been so. First, the First Amendment underscores what the framers understood rightly was America's first liberty. Now that wouldn't be fashionable in many circles today. The first liberty for many would be freedom of speech or for some freedom of assembly. The framers understood rightly though that freedom of assembly assumes and requires freedom of speech. You only want to get together with people to whom you want to say something that matters. And by the same token, freedom of speech assumes and requires freedom of conscience. You only want to speak out, not about the weather or something trivial in your life, but about those things that matter because you are bound by the dictates of conscience. Logically, religious liberty, freedom of conscience, was the first liberty. The second great legacy of the First Amendment was American social and spiritual vitality. Again, many would ignore that today. They would say American dynamism comes from free market capitalism. But actually, the First Amendment does the equivalent of free market capitalism and came in several decades before market capitalism. But if you think, disestablishment is the parallel to demonopolization and deregulation. Religious liberty as equality for all without exception as a right is the equivalent of a level playing field in the market and in business. And you can see how it unleashed a torrent of dynamism and entrepreneurialism. And much of the early American charities or the educational movements or reform movements, supremely abolition, were anchored in the social entrepreneurialism that came out of the spiritual dynamism released by the First Amendment. The third great legacy is social harmony. Now you take this for granted because you know it so well in this country and you only need to compare it with other countries to see the uniqueness. I often put it, the First Amendment brings together two things that here complement each other and in many other parts of the world contradict each other. It brings together the possibility of strong religious convictions with strong political civility. Take the contrast of Western Europe. After World War II, until the recent arrival of many immigrants from other parts of the world, Western Europe was overwhelmingly civil about religion. But here in Minnesota, 
You know well why. Almost no religion to be uncivil about. So many of you up here are from Scandinavia. And you know well a church going in Minnesota and the upper Midwest is in many places in the high 70s, well above the American average. In Sweden today, 3% go to church. If only 3% go to church, you're not going to be very uncivil about it in public life. And so much of the European achievement of civility, you say, no big deal. There wasn't much religion to be uncivil about. And with the arrival of people from many religions around the world, with the Commonwealth immigrants, North African immigrants, Europe is struggling in ways it hasn't struggled for a long time. The Middle East is the opposite problem. Passionate religious convictions, even within the same tradition, no civility, no liberty, no life. And this country's brought those two together, and there have been egregious violations, no question. The nativist movement, the know-nothing movement, the anti-Catholic or the anti-Semitic outbreaks every so often. But relatively speaking, the American experiment got religious liberty right long before it got race right and long before it got the place of women right. And it's one of America's great achievements, the most nearly perfect solution so far. But of course, with the culture warring, we're not there today. What has changed? Take the two biggest factors which have changed. On the one hand, an exploding pluralism. That isn't all new. The story of America is the story of a steadily expanding pluralism. In the 18th century, probably the middle colonies, Pennsylvania in particular, were the most diverse place on earth. Scores and scores of little sects. Swiss, Dutch, German, Scottish, you name it. Actually, they were all Protestant. And then came the Catholics, and it was a Christian diversity, and then Jews, and it was a Jewish and Christian diversity. The early 19th century, the so-called Made in America religions, like Mormonism and so on. But until the 1950s, it was loosely a biblical diversity in the sense that even if they were not Christian, say the Mormons, they at least traced their roots to the Bible, not to the Quran, not to the Bhagavad Gita. It was loosely biblical. And then in the 1960s, the explosion of secularists, and of course, increasingly among the educated classes, and then the explosion of the diversity of all the world's religions. So today, almost every religion you can find in the world, you can find in this country, mostly in California. <laughs> the second huge change is the emergence of a strict separationism. A lot of people today, conservatives or Christian conservatives, are uncomfortable with the idea of the separation of church and state, and they say things like, it's a myth, or it's not in the Constitution. One Republican congresswoman even called it a lie. That's wrong. The words are not in the Constitution. The principle and the idea certainly is, and the founders would have understood it clearly, and most Americans in American history would have understood it clearly. When Tocqueville comes here in 1831, he didn't find a single person who disagreed with the separation of church and state, including his own fellow believers, Roman Catholics, who in Europe would have supported a state church, but here agreed that it was 
fundamental to American liberty. What's changed? In the 1940s, there was the emergence and the triumph in some areas of a strict separation or a separationism, which goes way beyond the separation of church and state as the founders inaugurated it. They often quote Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Jefferson, as they call him in Charlottesville. But Mr. Jefferson didn't have a strict separation of church and state like his followers quote. Certainly on a Friday, he wrote his famous letter to the Danbury Baptists about the wall of separation, much quoted. But the Sunday after he wrote that letter, he went to the largest church service in America, which was under the roof of the Capitol. And every single Sunday he was in Washington, Jefferson went to church in the Capitol. And he invited Baptists and Episcopalians and others even to use the executive branch buildings and not just to be there, but to have communion services, highly Christian and spiritual. I often say that Jefferson's wall of separation is much more like his serpentine walls you see in Charlottesville and Monticello. Wavy. He was utilitarian over this, and he did believe in the separation of church and state, but he was also very functional in recognizing, as he said, the chief magistrate, recognizing the importance of faith. But the new separationism, the so-called strict separation, argues that religion is inviolably private, and the public square is inviolably secular. And that, of course, now forms one of the extremes of the two wings of the culture wars. So where are we today in the culture warring over religion, which in many ways is the holy war front of the broader culture wars in America? On the one hand, we have what's called the sacred public square. Those who believe that one religion should be at least preferred, although not established, and mostly it's the Christian faith, as in those who argue for Christian prayer in public schools. We haven't time for a long critique, but I would say very briefly that that position, the sacred public square, is both unjust and unworkable in a society as diverse as ours. And it will always, as it has, create reaction against itself including endless lawsuits and endless controversies. I would also argue, and here I speak as a Christian myself, that many in the religious right are producing the very fear that they object to. If you look at Europe, European secularity is a result of the reactions to yesterday's corrupt state churches. And America has always avoided that because of the genius of the First Amendment. So this country has been congenial and hospitable to all religions. But with the arrival of the so-called sacred public square and the emergence of the religious right, you can see a steadily mounting American equivalent of the European repudiation of religion, at least among the educated classes. At first, it was a reaction to the religious rights view of religion and public life, and you have books like Kevin Phillips's American Theocracy. More recently, it's a strident new atheism objecting to religion of any kind, how religion poisons everything, 
as Christopher Hitchens claims. And there's no question that behind the religious right, many on the atheist side see the violent extremism of religion around the world in the form of Islamism or Hindu nationalism or whatever. But in this country, it's the religious right they fear and against which they react. At the other extreme, you have the naked public square. Those who are sometimes secularists in philosophy or extreme separationists in constitutional theory who are trying to make religion purely private and the public square purely secular. Now, since most Americans are religious, whatever their faith is, the second extreme is even more unjust and even less workable. And not only that, it undermines the very way the framers saw that this country needed to give legitimacy to things like American freedom and human dignity. What's the alternative? Many of us would argue, but not yet at the highest level, many of us would argue that what America needs is a civil public square. What is that? It's a vision of public life where everyone of all faiths are free to enter and engage public life on the basis of their faith. But, here's the big but, within a framework of what is understood and taught from generation to generation to be just and free for others too. So I said I was a Christian. A right for a Christian is a right for a Jew, is a right for an atheist, is a right for a Mormon, is a right for the believer of every faith in this wide country. A right for one is a right for another and a responsibility for both. And of course, that means we work out if we're free to enter public life and engage with each other on the basis of our faith, how we negotiate those differences. For example, we should be persuasive, not coercive, and so on and so on and so on. A vision of a civil public square. What will it take? It will take first the articulation of vision far above what I've said in a few words today. A vision of a civil public square that captures the moral imagination of Americans. Secondly, it will take leadership. Leadership, I believe, on the order of the courage of an Abraham Lincoln or the strength of a Franklin Roosevelt to stand above the present culture warring, accentuated on our television and radio by all sorts of other factors, and say, in effect, a pox on both your houses, here is a better way for Americans of all faiths and all backgrounds. And thirdly, it will take an application to the trouble spots, and above all, political debate and the public schools. And when the deep principles of civility are once again taught and handed on to fifth graders and twelfth graders and people at all levels of public life, then a key part of American freedom will be restored. The great Alexis Tocqueville, who is a champion of American democracy, as you know well, and a disappointed lover with the French Revolution, and its botched attempts to create democracy. 
He wrestled with his enthusiasm for what he saw here and his disillusionment with what he saw in his own country the whole of his life. But one of his final comments comes home to where we are today. Tocqueville wrote, in a revolution, as in a novel, the hardest part to invent is the ending. I am a European visitor, a great admirer of this country. But I would say to you from the depths of my heart, no country has ever seen a generation of brilliant, daring leadership as America did with its founders, with their flaws such as race. There have been great leaders in history, but rarely a group of such great leaders at the same time. They began your country with a first chapter almost without parallel. Time has gone by. History moves on. And today, many of the things they set in motion are called in question by current events and current positions. And certainly this one, how do we live with our deep differences? If this generation of Americans does not get this right, this great republic will and can only decline. The question is whether there'll be a generation that understands what the framers did at its best and negotiates those principles under the changed condition of the early 21st century and hands on the torch to the next generation, burning brighter than it is today. Thank you. Thank you, Oz Guinness. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and social critic, Oz Guinness. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially the co-sponsors of today's event, Dr. and Mrs. William Ludwig and Mr. Joe Hognander. This is the final forum in our spring season, but we invite you to join us in the fall when journalist David Brooks and others will be among our speakers. Complete information on the fall season will be available this summer. And now, Oz Guinness, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. What do you consider the most important personal and leadership qualities of an effective president? I am a European visitor, as I said, and I make a point of not getting into your politics. <laughs> but I will just say this. Back at the time when there was the build-up to the impeachment of President Clinton, I happened to have breakfast and lunch with about a dozen of the Washington pundits, one of them after another, and you'd know many of them by name. And at breakfast of the first one, just the two of us, I said at the end, who for you, as we go into this national crisis, is the leader who is truly a statesman, 
who has a grasp of American history and of the global world in which we live and of all the challenges of today and various other virtues, character, vision, and so on, and at the end of the day also has access to a camera and a mic. And this well-known observer, he, he thought for a minute and said, no one, no one speaks for me. And one of the missing things today are, are statesmen rather than political leaders. Talk, talk, if you would, for a moment about the role a candidate's religion should play in a political campaign, from Kennedy to Lieberman to Romney to Obama. Clearly, religion plays a role. What, uh, what, candidates, what, what the religion of a candidate has to do with their political positions? Character and virtue and faith of any candidate, as the framers said so well, are bound to affect their decision-making. So it's an important part. Now, the trouble is, though, that in the context of the culture warring recently, everything about faith, good, bad, or indifferent, is now grist for the mill or something that can be fought about in the op-ed pages or sued over. And so from an outsider's perspective, you look at, say, the Christmas wars, the things that people get head, about, head up about and take to the law courts. If you restored civility, those issues wouldn't be important. And in the same way, if there was a restoration of civility and an understanding of how faith and public life were related, many of these things in the candidates wouldn't have to come up every five minutes. Now, I was actually a friend of one of the people in the, say, the Mitt Romney campaign. I will be specific here. And I warned this friend, who was part of the advisors group, they should do a Kennedy early so that Mitt Romney, if he wanted to be successful, could set out how he saw religion and public life, and it wouldn't become a controversy. They thought they might duck it, and they left it. When he did address it, he did not set out a statesman's vision. He gave a campaigner's vision, appealing to the group he wanted, which was, in his case, the conservative evangelicals. And naturally, the next day, the atheists, the secularists, were up in arms. He left them out. What was needed was a statesman's address of what was just and free and fair for people of all backgrounds, certainly the conservative evangelicals and certainly to the secularists. Now, the trouble was that with the lack of civility, the lack of the understanding of a civil public square, immediately that speech became, as did Huckabee's references, as did McCain's lack of any references. Anything today is grist for the mill for the controversies. We need to establish re-establish civility and an understanding of how faith and public life relate, or any reference to religion is immediately controversial. Remembering that we are standing in a church building that's located in Keith Ellison's congressional district, can you tell us what difference it makes, uh, uh, what difference a candidate's religion makes in their politics? Does it matter if we know what the religion is of a candidate? George Washington called this the great experiment. And if you think of an experiment, it's open-ended. And in many ways, the American experiment will always be open-ended. So when Jefferson says, truth is great and shall prevail in his first inaugural, he was opening public life to the debate of anyone from any background. Of course, they were mostly Christians then. But John Adams, among others, speculates of what might happen. There's always two ways you can undermine the great experiment. One would be faiths enter the argument, 
only to win the argument to put everyone else out of the argument. And as you know, there are certain, they're called Christian Reconstructionists, who literally say we want to play the pluralistic game to put the enemies of God out of the game, what they call in the Middle East, one man, one vote, one time. Now, there is a Muslim equivalent of that, those who would like to see the Constitution replaced by a caliphate. That isn't Keith Ellison. But you can see one way that America could be undone is allowing views to prevail in public debate, which would undermine the whole experiment. The other way it would be undermined is we have such tolerance to everyone and everything that eventually we slump into indifference about any differences. And then it would be undermined again. So the American experiment is open-ended. It is a gamble. It is a wager that the best, most true, most human, most just, most free faiths will prevail. And if any voice thinks they have that claim to the most true, etc., etc., they've got to get into the debate. And if they're not in the debate, they can't complain that the debate decides against them. It's an open-ended experiment. How does your call for civility differ from the politically correct notion of tolerance, which you just touched on, in which real differences are eliminated through the assumption that it's intolerant to seek to argue for one's particular religious or political view? Very important question. Freedom of conscience and what the framers call free exercise is very different from toleration. Tolerance, which was John Locke's word, and it was the universal word after the wars of religion, Tolerance is condescending and patronizing. It's the king tolerating the subjects. It's the majority tolerating the minority. It's the strong tolerating the weak. So tolerance is infinitely preferable to intolerance. But it's a poor word compared with religious liberty, with free exercise, and with freedom of conscience. And that's what we need to grapple with. And the trouble is today, many I'm picking on liberals here, they've lost the grip of understanding the positive rights like freedom of conscience. So they talk of things like hate crimes, hate speech, and these negative things. Now, they're very difficult to judge because they're subjective, and they again are in the eye of the beholder, and therefore a sword in the hands of the wielder. So many of the notions like hate speech and so on are rather dangerous and squishy, elusive. And we need to go back to exploring what the framers understood rightly, the first liberty freedom of conscience, religious liberty, the positive right. Because the trouble with tolerance, it quickly flip-flops, as the question has said, into intolerance. And you have political correctness. And the irony is, on many universities, they talk airily of diversity. But when diversity really arises and you have real differences, they don't like it. And the name of political correctness, they rule it out. So the sort of freedom I'm talking about is not sloppy tolerance. And it's certainly not political correctness. One of our audience members asks about the Republican Party. And many believe the Republican Party replaced comity with confrontation as a strategy for becoming a permanent majority. What did this do to the destruction of civility? Well, I'll leave out the present administration and just tell you of an incident back in the 80s when I was working on the Williamsburg Charter, which was a celebration of the First Amendment. One of President Reagan's cabinet secretaries said to me, we were trying to get the president at the big event, he said, we will never let you get to the president 
because civility is not in the interests of the Republican Party. The culture warring is. Now, that was a very candid statement from a cabinet secretary. And what he said was, the culture warring is in the interests of republicanism. And I said to him, Mr. Secretary, it is today. Tomorrow it could be in the interests of the Democratic Party. In the long run, the culture wars and the endless lawsuits and confrontation are not in the interests of America. And I firmly believe that, and sadly, both sides have tended to capitalize on the culture warring. It's not just Republicans. Democrats cheerfully would, too. And you can see that strongly in the election campaign. So in the long run, a tough, robust civility is necessary as well as vital for America's future. In public school curriculum, issues such as evolution, abortion, homosexuality seem to infuriate those in the sacred square and invigorate those in the naked square. What's the correct response for those who choose to live in the civil public square on those sorts of issues? Yeah. I'm glad the question to put it rightly. You have two sides on this, and both sides are thoroughly to blame with the way many of the issues are fought out. Now, the trouble is, in the public schools, there isn't much of a notion of civility taught. I have a great friend who works at the Freedom Forum, and he, Charles Haynes, Dr. Charles Haynes, he's about the most fair human being I know. And with this vision of a civil public square, he goes into public schools all over the country, California, Maryland, wherever it is, and sometimes the issue is the clash between creationism or intelligent design and evolution. Sometimes it's the gay issue, sometimes it's Say, a marching band in Maryland played How Great Thou Art, the Christian song at a high school parade, and all the Jews were up in arms, and so on, all sorts of issues. And he just patiently teaches them in school boards, local schools, what a civil public square really means and how all citizens have a stake in this. And positions that begin really inflamed, he has brought peace to. But notice, it is not, I'm not talking about an interfaith dialogue. There is a place for interfaith dialogue, but it is very limited. The fact is that if you love people of different faiths, say Christians, Muslims, Christian atheists, Christians, Jews, whatever it is, you can go a certain way with interfaith dialogue. But if people are faithful to their faiths, at a certain point you get down to differences that make a difference and irreducible. An orthodox Muslim can never bow to Jesus Christ as Lord and God, become a human being. And equally, an orthodox follower of Jesus Christ, just as the early church, would die rather than say Caesar was Lord and Jesus was not, would never compromise their belief that God became fully human in Jesus Christ. The differences at bottom are irreducible. We're not talking about interfaith dialogue. We're talking about a civil public square as a framework within which people are free to be different, but to negotiate their differences civilly, peacefully, although robustly. What role does economic equality and opportunity play in promoting public civility? Sadly, the economic injustices and inequities of our world are part of the exacerbating the aggravating factor, because it obviously touches on sense of justice and so on. Now, I don't think the inequities are a key part of what I was talking about 
but they're aggravating factors in a very, very serious way. And there are many others. You take, say, technological factors in the age of television soundbites. You're not going to have Lincoln-Douglas-like seriousness. If you've got 90 seconds, you want yin and yang, tweedledum and tweedledee. And if they slam each other for 90 seconds, that's great television, but very, very poor public policy debate. Or you can take direct mail. Set out 10 direct mail letters in front of you and just analyze the words underlined in red or green. And studies show that most of them are appeals to fear, sometimes even to hatred. And the very nature of direct mail militates against civility. Or take the blogs of the last five years. The nature of the blogs is they're unedited, undigested, venting of whatever we feel. Prejudice, hatred, you name it. Rudeness, but they're not agents of civility. So whether it's these technological factors or far more deep, serious ones like economic injustice, there are various factors which are exacerbating and making it worse. But we've got an issue here that has to be settled by itself. Can we reforge a civil public square? Here's a very uh, Minnesota-specific question for you. Can you comment on civility and funding of infrastructure like mass transit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not only European in America, I live in Washington as opposed to Minneapolis. I wouldn't have a clue how to answer your issues on that. <laughs> Ask Tim afterwards. <laughs> I, I, I think the assumption is that with the increase of, of uh, the civil public square, the public infrastructure would benefit, presumably. Certainly, one of the dangerous things in this society is a rampant individualism which loses a sense of community. And this plays out in economic issues, it plays out in transportation issues, and so on. And one of the challenges of our highly modern world, we cannot afford highly individual, extreme individualistic societies. We're all like little atoms. As human beings on the earth, and as fellow citizens in this great country, we are part of a community. And whether it's healthcare or transport or whatever, we have to think through what are the interests of the community and not just the individuals, and above all, the wealthy individuals. When Lincoln began his Gettysburg Address with fourscore and seven years ago, he clearly referenced the Declaration of Independence. Does we hold these truths to be self-evident have any meaning today? Is there a sense of liberties, rights, and responsibilities that can still unite us? Sadly, for many Americans, and an appalling number in the educated classes, those words don't mean anything. Technically, in modern philosophy, nothing is self-evident. But when you move from much modern philosophy, say, to a modern th thought like postmodernism, and the idea that nothing is, as they put it, decidable. Who's to say? It depends how each of us see it from our backgrounds, in terms of our gender, our race, or our class, or whatever it is. Nothing's decidable. The framers' ideas have fallen into disuse, sometimes through ignorance, but often through modern positions which militate against them very solidly. And that's the problem. Those who believe in the framers' ideas, not as antiquarian ideas, but really understand the genius of them and see their significance in changed circumstances, 
have to make arguments against the ignorant and arguments against the arguments that oppose the framers. I personally am a great admirer of the framers, certainly when it comes to this issue. As I said, they got race badly wrong. Jefferson was a rank hypocrite. I live in Virginia. He was a rank hypocrite when it came to race. No question, it was appalling. And I think Americans have got to face up to the fact that just as we English, the abiding curse of England is class. Will we ever get over the class that's written into our history? We still haven't. But the abiding curse of this country is race. But they did get religious liberty right. Uh, your book has a subtitle about America's future depending upon the recovery of uh, civil public square. Can you? Jim, it doesn't actually. The subtitle is why our future. There you go, our and future. And as an Englishman, when the publishers put America's future, I took it out at first. Uh -huh. And I put our future, the whole world's future depends, depends on, on it. On America's recovery and of the civil public square. Because America has the best shot at showing how the world lived with differences. Europeans have the principles in seed, but they don't know how to apply them. The Middle East and other places, you know, they have a culture that's quite different. America's closest to having a great successful shot at doing it. So the whole world, in some ways, depends on America showing the way. This questioner wonders about the worst case scenario then. Uh, say, America does not recover the, public, the civil public square 20 years from now, 30 years from now. What are the consequences of that? If the American public square is choked by litigation controversies we see now, that's like the filter blocking out the free flow of ideas. American vitality will be sapped, and within 50 years, this country will decline. For this reason alone, it's already under challenge from a lot of other areas, but for this reason alone. Now, the tragedy is the world. If you take the global public square, we've got on the one hand what are called the progressive universalists, those who believe their way is the way for everyone, and since it's right, you should be able to coerce them. Communists in the past, many Muslims today, and so on. That will only lead to conflict. Many in the West believe the answer is a multicultural relativism. Everyone comes from different backgrounds. Let's tolerate everything. The trouble with that is it leads to complacency. There are things in the world, take, say, genocide, whether Rwanda or Darfur, take, say, female genital castration. These things are wrong. They're evil. And if we're all multicultural relativists, and that's their way of doing it, who are we to say? We will just shut a blind eye to rank evil. The middle way is this civil, global public square. And America, as I said, has the best shot of leading the world forward in this. Quick answer for this question. What can these people here or on the radio do to promote the global public square? Well, we've all got to begin with ourselves. Whether we're talking to friends or we're talking to the internet, we've got to be civil. And then, to the degree that we read magazines or we give donations to political leaders, we need to demand from those we support and look to that they make a difference. Because so often people may say, well, I'm civil, but they s support television programs, they're fanatical about it, whatever, that are just forms of extremism. And you can see it on the liberal side, people like Ann Coulter, who flourishes by being rude, and then people on the other side who reply. We've got to hold the leaders that we know and support accountable to a better way. So certainly, 
While we need leadership breakthrough, it begins with each of us. Thank you, Oz Guinness.